Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're starting a new series. We'll start it with this. Do you, do you know who this guy is? This guy right here? Yeah. Right? Who's that? It's that karate kid. Yep. It's a great little story of a 98-pound weakling, you know, living somewhat of a miserable life. It's getting bullied by a bunch of thugs. And so he asks uh, Mr. Miyagi to teach him some karate so that he might be able to defend himself and maybe lay a few punches himself. There's some revenge themes in this for sure. And so Mr. Miyagi has him take an oath of, you know, just do what I tell you to do. And so next thing you know, Daniel's like waxing on all the cars and waxing off. And then he's sanding the deck. Right? And then he's painting the fence. And he's doing this from dawn until into the late night, day after day, just working. And it appears that all of this labor is without purpose, pain without purpose. And pain without purpose, it can drain even the strongest souls. And so Daniel, one morning, just snaps. He's done. Love to show you the video, but we can't anymore because we're broadcasting on the internet. But this is what happens. He confronts Mr. Miyagi and says, no more free labor. I can't believe what you're doing to me. This isn't what, what I signed on to. And then Mr. Miyagi kind of attacks him with various moves. And during that attack, all of a sudden, wax on and wax off and, and, and sand the fence or sand the deck and paint the fence were actually four major defense moves in karate. And Daniel's like, oh my goodness, I'm so surprised. And so is everyone that's ever done anything with martial arts. That's not how it works at all. So anyway, Daniel has this renewed enthusiasm. He's seeing all of his pain was purposeful. He's like, I have purposeful pain. I, I'm coming back for more. I want more pain. You got any more fence to paint? I'll see you tomorrow. It's a great little introduction to storyline. And I don't know about you, but I, I bet you had thought the same thing I did. When all that was revealed, he thought, hey, Mr. Miyagi's being kind of a jerk here, right? I mean, I mean, I guess in a word, it'd be cruel. Why not just tell the kid ahead of time that all of these exercises and drills, okay, they're going to lead to something and you're going to love where they lead to. This is going to teach you karate and you're going to be big and strong by the end of this. Then he goes into it with a better understanding of what he's doing, greater enthusiasm and probably getting better workouts. But nope, he doesn't do that. That's cruel. Pain without purpose. That's not like God. There is purpose in pain, and God tells us what that purpose is because he doesn't want to be a Mr. Miyagi that's cruel, but also so that we can have a renewed kind of attitude towards that pain saying, wait, it's going somewhere. It's going to develop in, in me things that couldn't happen any other way. If we knew, like, for example, what the purpose of life was, then we could see how God is using various means to get us to that end. Here it is. Life is purgatory. This is the time, this is the place where we are getting ourselves ready to have an encounter, face-to-face -face encounter with God. This is our sanctification time. This is uh, our, uh, life is a gym. It's not a spa. It's a battleship. It's not a cruise line. And today, I want us to like leave today with the enthusiasm that the Karate Kid did after his epiphany. Once he realized that there was purpose in his pain, and particularly in our subject matter, it's purpose in relationships. The pain that we've had, there's a purpose in the pain that we've had in our parenting, in our marriage, in our sibling issues, in our friends, 
in coworkers, all of that. Those things are waxing on and waxing off for a goal in mind. So like, here's the thesis, that we have difficulties in relationships, okay? And there's a reason for that. We have a deeply broken and bent soul. And the way that expresses itself is that we were designed to face outward. And that's a phrase we use around here. And what it means is we were designed to face out. When God made Adam and Eve, he created them to be constantly looking outside of themselves, to be gazing gazing on the wonder of God, gazing on the beauty and how to like manage creation, and finally gazing at the uniqueness of every individual man and woman. It was just like we, the prototypes, Adam and Eve, they were built, they were designed and then built to turn away from their own concerns and to turn outward, constantly looking for ways to serve, to serve God, creation, and their fellow man. It wasn't even within Adam and Eve to like try to get their needs met because they knew that their needs would be met by the promises of God being fulfilled and usually sometimes through other people. Innocence in those days, it was self-forgetfulness. There was plenty of ambition, but it was not selfish ambition. It was ambition for what the Lord might do. There was, there was once upon a time, there lived in the world all givers, no takers. But those days are gone. And here's why. Because they chose, and we still choose, to go against this design about how we were made, the way we were meant to be. And we, like, we, we have a consequence for all these rebellions. And the rebellions is we turn in. We just walk around with mirrors, and we're thinking I, we are absolutely intoxicated with getting. We are addicted to self. What about me? That's the life motto, motto for everyone that's bent this way, and everyone is. And so, for life to work, and for life to be in, life to work, and life to be enjoyed, we've got to go back to the way we were designed. We've got to fix what's broken. That's God's ambition in our lives to become like our true selves, who we were meant to be. And so let me just make it clear. God's purpose in our life, the end, is to make us like Adam before the fall or what's called the second Adam, Jesus. We need to be like that person facing out. And he doesn't doesn't hide this from us. After years of what appears to be purposeless pain, he says it right in the Bible. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8. For those who God foreknew, he, predest- he also predestined to become transformed to the likeness of his son, facing out original design, Adam too, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God foreknew and he planned before the beginning of time, he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me and he was going, look, I'm, my ambition for their life Everything that's going to, many things that happen in her life are going to be pointing towards this, getting them gazing outward again, getting them gazing at the glory of God, the beauty of creation, and serving and enjoying their fellow man, gazing out. In other words, uh, who would, what would Jesus be like if he were you? So he doesn't want to change who you are, you know, the essence of you. He wants he wants to change you to be like Christ if you were Christ, if Christ were you. What would that look like? 
I mean, you can look at the highlights of, of the Gospels and look at this kind of this face outness, you know, in the life of Jesus. You can pick any, any story you want in those biographies. I, one of the things that's just beyond understanding in my experience with reading the Gospels is when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is dying the slowest and the most painful way that was possible during that time and in that part of the world. And I think during that time, he expresses and displays courage and compassion that cannot be understood unless he was perfect, and he was. Gazing out, because you know, when you're in pain, when you're in a great deal of suffering, that's a good time to say, yeah, I think, I think I could spend a little bit of time thinking about me right now. I think this is a good time to say, hey, it, what's up? <laughs> Can somebody help me here? But Jesus, in the context of that, hanging on a cross, he looks and he sees that his mother appears to be scared. She's afraid. And with, with nails piercing his hands, he looks at John and says, John, can you take care of my mother? That's his preoccupation looking outside. That's what we were meant to do. There's so many different expressions of turning out. That's why at Grace here, we did this summer of giving and a fall of serving. You know how we did that? Because we, maybe some of us got out of shape during the previous 18 months and kind of started turning inwards and we needed to learn to get back in shape. Let's make it a fun thing. Let's make it a game. Let's see how much we can give. Let's see how much we can serve. And in those expressions of giving and serving, you can feel this ping of, of the spirit saying, yes, that's the way you were designed. And that's the way life works. It is our destiny to face out just like Jesus. Can you imagine, can you imagine what you would be like as a parent if you weren't concerned about your own convenience or your reputation or sleep? <laughs> I mean, what, wow. And then what kind of friend you would be or a coworker or a mate? Can you imagine? Because God has imagined that. He's already, he knows exactly what that looks like. And he goes, okay, I'm going to get you there. How does that transformation happen? Not through pointless pain, I can tell you that. There's waxing on, okay. There's painting the fence. There's sanding decks. There's pain. And the pain is in relationships, and it's purposeful. Pain in relationships is purposeful. They're not random. They're not pointless. They're to draw our attention to, hey, what would it be like if you faced out on this? Put down your mirror and look at what's going on around you. I mean, think about some relational challenges in the past. To be clear, I'm not talking about evil. Evil's over here. It makes all of this far more complicated for most of us to understand. So I'm talking about difficult friendships or difficult relationships. When you look back at those, is it possible that you could have been maybe more compassionate and courageous? Maybe one of the things you can learn from that past is, man, I should have been facing out. That was a great opportunity. I was just painting a fence, and I didn't make the most of that. I could have been waxing on. Let me show you proof positive that <laughs> the world works in the context of relationships by when it goes back to its original design. If we go to the design and face out, it, life, life just works because that's the way it was designed. Watch this, St. Francis of Assisi, you may know of him, right? He, in his adult life, 
spent his career gazing, facing out, looking at the glory of God, certainly caring for creation and his fellow man, famous for his wisdom and his proverbs. Here's one you probably know. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. In a conversation with someone, whoa, whoa, wait, I want you to go first. Before we move on, I want to understand your perspective on this. I don't need to make sure you know my view. Let me listen. And then, 790 years later, a best-selling author sells a book in business called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You want to be a highly effective person? Here's what the back cover says about this book, written by Covey. Covey calls for a whole paradigm shift, a change in perception and interpretation of how the whole world works. The whole works, the world, the world works by facing out. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm not kidding. His fifth, like seven habits, of, his fifth habit is seek first to understand and then to be understood. Just steals it from St. Francis of Assisi. It's called, I think it's called the principle of empathetic communication. 40 million copies have been sold in this paradigm shifting book on how life works because it goes back to the original design. You wanna be highly successful? I bet you do. Face out. That's what Stephen Covey says. That's what the Bible says. And it's been saying it for a long time. So here's the thing. We need to get back to the original design because that's who we were meant to be. We need to get back to the original design because that's what works. And the purpose of our life down here is to become like Christ. And the means of that change from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be probably through relationships. This week, I want you to see that singleness is a means of becoming like Christ. Singleness is a means of becoming like Christ. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes a book called Corinthians, and he dedicates more than two full paragraphs just on the blessing of singleness the gift of singleness. He, he, he's using this as an opportunity to say, hey, if you're single, you should face out because then life is more tolerable. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in these few verses that I've put up. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that, look at that, that the time is short. Time is short. From now on, those who have wives, they should live lives as they do not. Those who mourn as they did not. Those who are happy as, they, as though they were not. Those who buy something as if, if, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who have things of the world as if not to be engrossed by them. For this world in its present form is just passing away. What Paul is saying is life is short, so seize the day. Everything, we're like, we're, we need to know that life is, we know as followers of Jesus Christ that the end is coming soon. This isn't home, we're just passing through. So what he's saying is, look, you can be happy in your success, just don't be overwhelmed by that success in what we would say, don't let that define you. Sure, be grieving in your loss, but don't be dev overwhelmingly devastated by loss because that will define you and it's showing that this is your home and not the next existence. He's saying, you know, like the stuff, like you got stuff, fine. Just don't get engrossed in owning that stuff. 
because this isn't your home and time is short. And in the context of marriage and family, he's just saying, look, married, married life, single life, it's, it's got problems. They both do. And they both have advantages. But don't put, don't put all of your hope there because we're not from here. We're not going to end up here. Don't let that, a great marriage, define you or a terrible marriage or a content single life or a discontent single life define you. Because he's saying this, Christ is our ultimate spouse and God's family is our ultimate family. And in this life, we get a foretaste of both of those. And that's how we live. The Bible says this, singleness is a gift. Look what Paul says in chapter 7, 7. He says, I, I, I wish that you were all as I am, and he's single. I wish you were all like me, single. But each of you has your own gift from God, and one has this gift, and another has that. He's saying singleness is a gift. Now, when the Bible talks about a gift, it, you need to be clear, uh, know this, that a, a gift is like if somebody gifted my wife, actually gifted me with this watch. This watch is mostly for me, and I enjoy it, and it makes me look good, okay? It's not that kind of gift. A gift in the Bible is like when you give your... <clears throat> excuse me, uh, your son a football. And you give him a football, not so he can just, you know, throw it up and play catch with himself. You don't give him a football so he can put it on his shelf so it will never get scraped or scuffed or ruined. You give your son a football so he can take it outside and the whole neighborhood can enjoy a neighborhood game of football. It's the, a, a gift is given to serve and to be enjoyed by everyone else. Use the football up, son. Run it into the ground. I'll get you another one when you're done. In the Bible, it's, we will say sometimes, you're blessed, not for you, you're blessed to be a blessing to others. So when he talks about this gift of singleness, he's saying the same thing. You've been given this gift of singleness, use it up for other people facing out. <laughs> Paul's not suggesting that singleness is easy. He's not suggesting that singleness is not without difficulties, significant difficulties. He's just saying this. You, you've got to use that gift to look out and to gaze at opportunities for worship of God is to, to tame his, his creation and to serve fellow man. Because singleness facing out is, is endurable and some many times joy-filled. But singleness turned in, oh, it's dark. And it touches and sours everything it touches. It's not a good way to live. It's interesting, in Christianity, a social historian notes that Christianity is the only religion and culture that exalts singleness and just puts it up there and says, they're single and married with family. That, those are equal attributes, equal giftings. Uh, the founder of Christianity, single man, Jesus Christ. The theologian of Christian doctrine, Paul, a single man. That doesn't happen much. Single living makes sense and works when you understand that time is short. Time is short. Because your hope is not in a family, but in God and his family. That's how singleness can be a, a gift. And the idea of one of the harder parts of being single is just growing old alone. But growing old alone is not an option for a person that is entwined in his local church. We won't allow that to happen. We'll allow widows and singles to be part of our collective family. 
The second thing that Paul talks about here is that singleness is a gift to the church. Singleness is a gift to the church, and here's why. Let's look, look at this passage. I'd like, to be, I'd like you to be free from concern, like untethered, in other words. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. He can do what, he ple- what, what pleases the Lord. But a married man, he's concerned about the affairs of the world. He also has to please his wife. And, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin, she's concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman, yeah, she's concerned about the affairs of the world, how she, has to, how she can please her husband. And I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying singleness is a gift to the church because singles can serve in a frequency or in capacities that married people cannot because they have dual devotions and responsibilities. It's pretty easy to see this. If you've been involved in a church that has a, a large singles ministry, a large college ministry or singles ministry, then here's, here's how announcements go, okay? Second week of announcements. Hey, everybody, we have, uh, we have like eight places left in the children's ministry and you better hurry up or you'll miss your opportunity to serve there. And then boom, just like that, the volunteer you know, needs are met almost right away. And you know why? Because they've had three adults to every child. And that's why those, those churches seem to like, it all happens easy. And then you go to just a typical church where those aren't the ratios. We're at week seven. Hey everybody, we got 97 spots left. Please, 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 please help your church. You know, and one of the reasons that happens is because like at a church like ours, for every two adults, there's three kids over here. You know, I mean, just, just count the minivans and the SUVs between here and your car on your way out. It's, we have a lot of kids. And so, so the point is, it's not a lack of commitment to children's ministry and loving those children. It's not a lack of commitment to volunteering. It's just this. Singles are a gift to the church. And they make a church healthy. It's all there is to it. They have opportunities and frequency we don't. Here's another thing that Paul talks about is the church is a gift to singles. The church is a gift to singles. The church is a place where singles can connect with a family. They can say, you know, that's my brother, that's my sister. We spend, we're going to spend our lives together. We're going to vacation together. We're going to eat together. We're going to... Just as the church, as singles make the church healthy, the church can make singles healthy because the things that they need uh, are granted to them by the church. The church is, is a gift to singles. It is a place to build intimate, fun, purposeful relationships. The body of Christ, that's where singles can go to be cared for when they are in need, when they are sick, when they are in financial needs. This place, this place, grace. Grow old along with me. Let's do this together. And I'll tell you, the last 18 months has been especially difficult for our brothers and sisters that are single. The, the, the lockdown section was especially difficult. And then those four days of being trapped inside your house all by yourself if you're living alone, it, it shook a lot of us but especially deeply those singles. They felt alone and isolated. And I I must say, I am proud of how many people in our church 
saw what was happening and reached out to those singles and made phone calls and did what they could to get those pipes fixed or whatever that might have been. Um, but I have to tell you, I'm ashamed of myself. I didn't know how, I didn't know how, during that time, I, I turned in. I was like, it's me and my family. We're going to get through this. Good luck, everyone. And I didn't fully appreciate that until we started meeting back. And I saw some of our singles and I went, never so much as picked up a phone. And I just, uh, I should know better. And I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm here to say I'm really sorry for you singles that I could have cared for more effectively, and I would love for you to forgive me. And I would like, if you're with me, wouldn't it be good if we could focus more and care more for our singles in this church? To like have them in the front of our minds so they don't get lost when things get difficult for us. But I, I want to do this better. I hope you do too. We have a wonderful single godly woman in our church. Her name is Jill, and I, if you know her, you love her. And we've asked her to give a little story about her singleness. And I, before we play her video, I wanted you to listen for things. I want you to listen to her admission of difficulty, her feeling of isolation. And I want you to listen also how much she got involved in our church. And not just our singles ministry, but she's attending adult communities that are that are not just for singles. They're, one of them's word in the way. It's a lot of couples, and, and there are many of those people in there are old enough to be her parents. She says, let's go. She got involved in Bible studies. She got involved in service uh, uh, places so that she could know people and serve her church. I want you to listen to her attitude, that she has this value that time is short, and she is seizing her singleness. And then the last thing, I want you to listen for her hope. Her hope is in the Lord and his promises. Not in anything here and now. Okay? Let's listen from Jill. My name is Jill Lawler, and I am from the Dallas area, and I moved to Austin in 2006 to go to UT Hookham, and I started attending Grace in 2012. And um, my first connection point here was the co-ed precepts Bible study group during the week. And since then, my family here has just expanded and deepened through participating in other ministries and Sunday morning courses and communities. As far as being single, um, one challenge that I face is it's easy to allow myself to be isolated and unseen. Even though I'm a fairly social and well-connected person here, um, I imagine Feeling lonely in marriage is probably more difficult at times, and it's not a unique challenge to singleness. But as a single person, I don't know that anyone sees me at my worst. While it can be lonely, God has definitely built up a very rich family around me here at Grace with different friends and mentors that I've made just from serving in different ways or just showing up on Sunday morning to different courses or community groups like the Word in the Way, and the Forefront Singles Group. And ultimately, I get to lean hard on the fact that God really is closer than a spouse or a friend ever could be, and knows me and knows what's going on in my heart better than I know myself. 
and can help me work all that out. Being single has allowed me some unique opportunities for ministry that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Uh, one example is without much notice and also rescheduling due to the winter storm. Um, I was able to go live with a friend for two months after she had knee surgery. And I was able to be completely available to her needs. And in serving her, God actually blessed me even more, I think. <laughs> and after living alone and working from home the last year, I was not in a good place with that. And um, by getting to stay with her for a while, it was just great and refreshing to be with someone um, and have a change of scenery as well. This is an example of why I do appreciate where I am right now. Um, I do have the flexibility to really drop almost anything in a moment's notice, whether it's to help someone with something, also just spontaneous fun. <laughs> something that encourages me is that God does not check my resume for my relationship status before I'm eligible um, to serve in different ways or grow in maturity. Um, we are all part of the body of Christ now with a part to play. It helps me a lot to think about marriage as a metaphor of the covenant between Jesus Christ and the church with an ultimate fulfillment when we'll be with him forever in eternity. And so I think that longing serves a purpose and we're looking ahead to something. While this is true, I don't think that God expects that to somehow take the place of or remove the desire to be married. And that's okay. It's okay to struggle with living in that tension of living life here now and waiting for Him to make all things new. We may eventually be married in this life, and some will remain unmarried for various reasons, but He will most completely fulfill all of those desires in the life to come for all of us, married and single, because I'm pretty sure that getting married doesn't solve all of life's problems based on what I hear. <laughs> and let's be honest, it can be hard to be obedient in the waiting. Uh, through faith in Christ, we can approach God with freedom and confidence and always turn back to Him, follow His ways, and take part in the body of Christ today. That's the testimony of a godly young woman who's facing out. So, so what? Time is short. Seize the day. Seize the series. Here's how to make the most. Here's how to see, seize this series. It's called Five Words. Some of you are thinking, hey, didn't we do that already? Yes, it's part of our what we call core curriculum that we repeat. It's been seven years. A lot's changed. We have a lot of new people here that didn't hear it seven years ago. And your life has changed. When we went through five words last time, you had a fifth grader. Now he's driving and he's leaving next year. He graduates in just a few months. Boom, a lot's happened in those five years. So here's what to do with this series. One, make sure you don't miss the rest of the series and bring a friend. This is an easy application of why God is doing whatever he's doing in your life and how to apply it to becoming like Christ in all of life. 
Tell your friends and don't miss. Second one is get the study guide. We have an, a, a beautiful study guide that is filled with extracurriculum. It has uh, great chapters from other authors on the subject matter that we'll be discussing. We don't endorse all these other books and all these other chapters, but they're very good. Like all the books that we recommend, we don't necessarily endorse, but it's good supplemental material. It's great for having a discussion. You can get that notebook if you just go to the website and download it. I think it's even on the front page. It's a PDF. You can print it yourself or use it from your laptop. We have some in the lobby. If you want some, and then going on to the next one is get into a study group or get into a small group, join a small group. We have an auditorium across the hallway by the coffee here, and they're going to meet meeting uh, during the 11 o'clock service from now until the end of the, ser the series. You can join them today. No RSVP. You can jump in anytime you want from now on and join a small group as they go through this material. So they'll have study guides there as well. The, uh, many of our adult communities are going through this. And why all the adult communities? Because each one is going to have to apply it differently. There's a section on like leaving your home of origin and making sure it's not kind of having too much influence in your own marriage. So the newlyweds are gonna be learning how to leave. The empty nesters are gonna be learning how to get left. <laughs> They both have difficulties in front of them, but they're completely different applications. So we'll be doing that. They'll have study guides as well. Maybe you could even start a group. Grab some friends at work. Anybody that needs work in marriage, this will help them. It doesn't matter if they go to church, if they follow Christ or not. These principles apply to every man and woman that is in the image of Adam, the fallen Adam, that needs to be in the image of the second Adam. Finally, I'd say if you're mentoring people, we have a lot of that going on here because of the multi-generations, use this material, use this material. Let me just conclude by saying this, anything worth having, you're gonna have to work for, right? Anything worth having, you're gonna have to work for. There's no mystery to the waxing and the sanding and the painting. It's painful, but it's purposeful pain. It is to form you in the image of Christ. It is to get you and me to gaze out. Enjoy the splendor of God's glory, his majesty, to enjoy being a co-regent with him in creation and to, to, to have like in deep relationships. The pain is to help us get what was supposed to be natural to us, gazing, serving, joy, love. But now we're bent and we have to learn these things that were supposed to be intuitive to us. Look what one author says. Love must be learned and learned again and again. There is no end to it. Hate needs no instruction, but waits only to be provoked. Let's be a church filled with people that know how to love, compassion and courage. Wow. Let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we lift up this, this wisdom, this knowledge that the pain, much of the pain in our life, especially relational pain, actually has a purpose. And I'd ask that you would help us, your spirit would ignite our memory and see that those conversations or those events were towards an end to make us more compassionate or courageous or just fundamentally like Christ. Lord, I'd ask that your ambition for our life, that you predestined before the beginning of time, would be our ambition in life, that we'd want to become more like Christ in all aspects of our life. Give us that, just not the desire, but the will to do it. Give us the endurance to wax and sand and paint to your glory and our transition. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.